Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I want to preach a sermon entitled, Pursuing the Wind, this morning. This section launches us into the autobiographical section of the book, which is going to last until chapter 12, almost the end. And what we're going to see here is that this book teaches us that it is folly to chase wisdom and knowledge. It's folly. In our culture, like Israel in their day, so many believe that by learning more and experiencing more, they will find satisfaction. Last week, the writer gave us the summary of the book of Ecclesiastes, which, by the way, the word Ecclesiastes, you might recognize it, comes from the Septuagint, actually, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and it means assembly, assembly. So this assembly is hearing these words from the teacher, and the assembly is hearing that to chase after wisdom and knowledge, is, it's foolishness, it's folly, it cannot bring satisfaction. And in the beginning verses, in verses 1 through 12, the whole of the content of all the way through chapter 12 is really laid out in summary form. Notice, remember, I'll just look back up the page a little bit. What does man gain, he says in verse 3, by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's the question of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. What benefit is it for me to work so hard in this life? To try to get ahead only to find out that everything is cyclical. Everything just turns over and over and over. The, a generation goes, a generation comes. The sun rises, the sun sets. The streams flow to the ocean and the ocean is never satisfied. It's never full. So it is with us. All of our lives chasing after what this life is really all about. And what we find like the writer, is that it's meaningless. He says that to us in the superlative. Meaninglessness of meaninglessness, says the preacher. Meaninglessness of meaninglessness. All is meaningless. I mean, he does not spare us one ounce, does he? He leaves us with this feeling of emptiness, incompleteness. Lack of satisfaction. And we saw that last week. We can't escape it. Nothing will escape the label according to the preacher. Nothing in this life will escape the label meaningless. Nothing. Everything under the sun from that perspective doesn't hold out hope for us. It holds out frustration. And I mentioned it last week, and I just want to say it again. If you are honest, get out of your churchiness, and get into what you really deal with on a daily basis, I believe most, if not all of us, right now or sometime just in the past, have experienced this very feeling of hollow meaninglessness. Last week we looked at the meaning of life according to Kolef. This week in Ecclesiastes 1, 13 through 18, we want to explain the method by which the preacher arrived at his conclusion. 
And then next week, we're going to look at the categories under which he searched and looked for meaning. But let's focus on this week's text. Ecclesiastes 1, begin in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun, under heaven, excuse me. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what's lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Ecclesiastes 1, 13 through 18, we want to explain, the writer wants to explain to you the method by which he went about finding the meaning of life. At the end of this section, this larger section, at the end in chapter 2, verse 26, he's going to say, what, the, what he finds to be the greatest truth under the sun. The solution. But today is not about solutions. Today is about the problem and about trying to find the, the solution to the problem. And I'm straining at it because I think this is what has so easily slid into our minds and our hearts. And some of us as Christian parents and some of us as, as Christian men and women need to think about this today. Because what we've done is we've taken a proverbial look at the world and told ourselves and our children, just be wise. Just make good decisions with your life. In general, if you do the right thing, son, daughter, if you just do the right thing, life will work out for you. You'll find satisfaction. You'll have a wife. You'll have children. You'll have enough money. Maybe excess of money. You will live a good life. And what our writer says is that even that is meaningless. When you take the world system, when you take the under the sun system, now listen to me, whether it be the conservative view of that system or the liberal view of that system, you have an under-the-sun perspective, and it will lead to meaninglessness. In other words, conservatism is not the gospel. Liberalism is not the gospel. Neither offers us hope. I was just having this conversation with a young guy this week. And he's a red-blooded American conservative. So for all of you over 50 who are worried we don't have any of those left, they're still out there. 
He's in his 20s. He's finished college. And he wants to preserve this nation the way this nation has always been. He's just almost pounding the bully pulpit. And he thinks he's going to get an amen from me. And I looked at him and said, when you get to the end of your life, if that's what you lived it for, you will find it brings no satisfaction. He was almost shocked. Because what he expected from a biblical gospel guy was that conservatism is an answer. It is an answer, but it is a bad answer. Because it seeks to preserve a world system under the sun. I've had conversations in the last few months with young folks and old folks alike who want to progress beyond what we've been in our society. And at the end, I look at them and say the same thing. If you live your whole life for the cause of progressivism, it will be meaningless. It will be meaningless. Because all you will have done is move the world's system to yet another end, another step of an endless journey of steps that will never find a resolution in this world. The great hope of the world is not conserving a bastion from the past nor creating a new utopia, but to believe God when he says there is no utopia in this world. Under the sun, there is no hope. We need the one who's above the sun. And we need his solution. And so as I start out, I just think what our writer did is he used the system that he had to find an answer. And what he found was that it was meaningless. Pursuing the wind. Our passage explains the method that the preacher used to gain understanding of the meaninglessness of life which was lived under the sun. The theme of this passage is that wisdom brings frustration and sorrow when it's only the wisdom that can be gained under the sun. Wisdom itself brings nothing but frustration, brings nothing but sorrow when it's limited to the perspective of this world. How many of you have thought about what motivates you in this life? What motivates other people in this life? It's a question that mankind has been seeking after from the very beginning of the garden. After the fall of man into sin, man, when he sinned, lost his meaning, lost his purpose, lost his connection to his father, saw the world as broken, and began to think, what's going to motivate? What is it I ought to be going after? What's my purpose is another form of this question. What makes me get out of the bed in the morning? You ever thought about that? Some of you think about it when you hit the snooze for the eighth time. Why get out of bed? Because the cycle's going to continue. And I'm going to be older than I was the day before. And nothing's going to be solved at the end of this day. In my opinion, Blaise Pascal gave probably the best answer and the most honest answer from the world's perspective to this question of what motivates me in this life. He said this, all men seek happiness this is without exception whatever different means they employ they all tend to this end the cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it 
is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will, the will of man never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. What is the motivation of the heart? Happiness. Satisfaction. I believe that this is the motive of every action that I take every day, is I want satisfaction. I want to feel happy. I want to know fulfillment. If you're honest this morning, that's where your heart is. Your heart is to know satisfaction, to be feel, feel full and content. God made us this way. He made us this way. It's apparent that this is an unquenchable desire in this life, that we be, we be filled in various ways with satisfaction. And God made us this way, and yet listen to this. He knew that we would never be satisfied until we found our satisfaction in Him alone. But sadly, since the fall of mankind into sin, man has sought satisfaction and fulfillment everywhere but in Christ alone. Everywhere. The subsequent separation from God that man suffered, the brokenness of the creation due to sin, means that we cannot find lasting satisfaction in this world. Coaleth goes on that same pursuit in Ecclesiastes. He pursued meaning in this life through the method of applying wisdom, and this is what he found. Seeking all the wisdom and knowledge that can be found under the sun will never, ever lead to anything other than frustration and sorrow. Look at who this man is in verse 12. I, the preacher, he says, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Last week I concluded that in my opinion, in my opinion, this book wasn't written by Solomon himself in the 10th century, but rather is a type of writing we get in the Middle East during this time where someone takes on the persona of another to drive the point home, trying to make it to the nth degree. The writer, this wise man, says, look, Solomon is the subject because no one has ever sought these things like Solomon did. No one's ever surpassed Solomon in wisdom. No one's ever been greater or more powerful in Israel's history than this one man. But when was it written? I believe it's better to say that it was written in the third century by an Israelite wise man, teacher, preacher, after the exile into Babylon. While this is not accepted by everyone, it's not unanimous, and there is room, plenty of room to disagree over it, this matters because it, it tells us who the audience is. Who is our writer writing to in this book of wisdom? If we take the book to have been written personally by Solomon, then this audience is one at the zenith of their power. They are the biggest landmass they will ever be. And they have the most wealth, the most prestige, the most power that they will ever have in Israel. The people are enjoying the most prosperous time of their whole history, if Solomon wrote it. If the book was written by a wise sage, 
using Solomon as a persona, which he takes on to teach a lesson. If it's the third century, the audience is completely different. If it's the third century, they've been in Babylon and they've come home to a destroyed nation. And they're in the business of rebuilding the prestige, power, and prosperity that once this great nation had. So either can be true, right? I mean, let's say you hold to Solomon writing these things. That's okay. What you need to see the audience as is his warning as an old man to not go down his path. And if you accept like me that it was written later, what you have is an audience that is headlong in pursuit of worldly prestige, power, prosperity. And the wise man is saying at the beginning, if you run down that road, it ends in vanity. Why? Because Solomon, the greatest that's ever walked among us, ended his search with those words. I believe it's best to take it at the, la the later writing, but regardless of the position you take on authorship, dating, of verse, verse 12 begins the section of this book focused on the life of Solomon and his pursuit of the answer to life. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. We see here that he says under heaven. It's the same as under the sun. He's making the same statement. Everything, in other words, in the physical creation is under my consideration. Everything. There are no exceptions. I'm looking at everything. How? Look what he says. By applying my heart. In the Hebrew, this word means mind. He's applying his mind. He's applying the center. Another way to understand it is the center of my being. The real inner me is on this search. It means all of his passion, all of his intellect, all of his power. Everything that he is as a man, he's throwing it into searching out under the sun an answer, under heaven for the meaning of this life. It's exhaustive and it's exhausting, this search is. It's exhaustive in that it's everything and it's exhausting in that it never comes to an end. The search never comes to an end. I mean, I could give you the task of searching out life just in Calhoun County and you would be exhausted because it is exhaustive. This man says, I'm searching out everything known to us in all the world to find an answer to this one question. And I'm applying my mind, I'm applying my will, I'm applying my power of intellect, I'm applying my riches, I'm applying my wisdom, I'm applying everything I have to solving this one issue of life. This is a task that he undertakes with all of who he is as he seeks out and searches by wisdom. The tool he uses is wisdom. The method he goes about it is in wisdom. Now, every one of us makes a search of some kind, right? Every one of us goes out on the journey to find the answer to life. Now, you might not think that grandiose about it, but that's really what you do when you wake up one morning and say, well, I want to go to school to get a degree to have this job. 
and marry this woman and build this house and have this many kids. And what the writer's saying is everything you're doing is trying to fill that vacuum. If you're trapped under the sun, everything you're doing is trying to make me happy. Trying to, how's it working for you, by the way? You feeling happy? You feeling fulfilled? Some of you got a promotion just in the last year. We came through hard times. The economy cranked back up. And your boss came in and said, you did such a good job. I want to give you a raise and give you a bigger responsibility. And the high that you received from that lasted until the phone rang with the next problem. That you realized you can no longer pass to somebody bigger than you. Right? Some of you took government's money and bought a new car with it. And the new car smelling gone and it already makes you sick to see it sitting in the driveway because it just doesn't satisfy. And some of you bought that ring and you've put it on that finger and there's trouble in paradise and you ain't even got married yet because you can't even agree over how to have a ceremony. You would laugh at that, except that it's true. You pursue the same things this man pursued is what I'm saying. You are not different than him. You are just like him. Some of you are doing it recklessly, though. You're not using any sort of wisdom. You're just running after it headlong, going. This man wasn't that way. He was not reckless. He was not disorganized. He was not from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. No, he was applying the wisdom he had been given from God to solve this problem. And I say in defining his wisdom, he received it from God because the record of the scriptures tell us that Solomon received his wisdom from the Lord himself. In 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon prays. And in verse 3, he says this, it says this, Solomon, 1 Kings 3, 3 says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father only. He sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was a great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, listen to this, ask what I shall give you. God himself showed up and said, ask and you will receive. Solomon, Solomon said, you have shown, and Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on the throne this day. And now, O oh Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, a congregation, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give, this is his request. Ask whatever you want, Solomon, God says. And he says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding 
mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this your great people Solomon asked God for wisdom because God told him he could have whatever he wanted and he received the greatest of wisdom that's the tool he's using to search out under the sun under heaven he's searching out how is it that I can be satisfied or any of us can be satisfied. And in 1 Kings, just a page over in my Bible, in chapter 4, verse 29, this is what it says. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. And breadth of mind, like, listen to this. Breadth of mind like the sand of the sea. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Alexandria was the center of thinking in his day. And he's, this is what the scripture says. Solomon received so much wisdom from God that it was like the sand on the seashore, the breadth of his mind. It far exceeded all the people of the East, even Alexandria, where you could take every wise man Alexandria ever produced, mass their, their wisdom together, and Solomon would still outstrip them in wisdom. He had great wisdom. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan and Ezrahite and Heman, Calcol and Durda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, wrote over 1,000 songs. He spoke, out, he spoke out trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He spoke also of beasts and birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So when our writer says, I sat on the throne in Jerusalem and I applied my inner being, all of my wisdom, all of my mind, all of my power to understand the problem of life, all of it under the sun, we're dealing with the greatest mind outside of Christ that ever inhabited the planet. He knows it all. Some of you think you're really smart and some of you are. Trust me, you're not this smart. He classified all the plants. He classified all the animals. Sound familiar? He had a mind like his father Adam before him. He knew everything to the point that even the wisest wise men came to hear from him. Even the kings of the earth brought their treasure into his treasure house that they might know anything that he knew. I applied my heart to seek and search wisdom all that is done under heaven and this is what I found out this task that I took is an unhappy an unhappy business your Bible might say an evil business an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with I'm looking for the answer and it's like busy work in the back of the classroom can I get an amen on that? If you're a teacher here, can I just tell you, stop giving your students busy work. 
is there anything worse than sitting in class doing sheet after sheet after sheet after sheet after sheet after another sheet of busy work? And when you finish, the teacher says, yeah, I'm not taking it up or grading it. It, it just wanted you to do it. Did you need a Snickers? Were you hangry? Were you frustrated? Solomon said, this task that I undertook, given to me by God, it was that kind of task. It left me totally unhappy. I tried to satisfy my thirst only to find more thirst. I tried to come to the end of the thing only to find there was a bottomless pit. All of it left me wanting. Why? There it is. Because all is meaninglessness. All of it. And a striving after the wind. Now he's going to say this twice in this passage. But let me just quickly tell you what it means. What the writer is trying to tell us is, is that seeking the answer to life with wisdom applied under the sun is no different than if we got up and went out into the yard. Now I want you to imagine this. Put on your, your, your imaginative abilities here for a moment. And leave yourself out of the scenario because it's funnier that way. That's what I did when I was thinking about it this week. So everybody else in church this morning is out in the yard here on the property. And you're not doing what they're doing. You're watching them. And they're like, they're, they're running around the yard going. And then they run, run real fast. The fastest among them runs with his hands out like this. And you say, well, Andrew, what are you doing? You look so silly. No, 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 man, I'm, I'm working hard. I got it. You're, you look like you're exerting a lot of effort. What are you doing? I'm shepherding the wind. Herding it. And then you look over and Carlton Brown's got like a butterfly net. He's swatting it here and there. You would, you would want to have everybody here committed to that, wouldn't you? So these people are crazy. That's just how crazy it is to think you will solve this world's deepest problem through your mind, through your inner being, through your ability. What's bent cannot be straightened. Why? Later he's going to tell us because God bent it. <laughs> and what's lacking cannot be counted. That's a simple, it doesn't even need really any explanation, does it? If you don't have it, you can't count it. If it's bent, you can't make it straight. It's bent. This world is bent. This world, this world under the sun is lacking something. Therefore, you can't put a, a sign of value to it because it's lacking. It's not there. It's like counting your chickens before they hatch. 
so many of you, I'm afraid, are building your life this way. And you think, if I just live 10 more years, I'm going to have it figured out. And you're going to reach the end of that decade and say, maybe 10 more years. Maybe 10 more years. And Roy, they're going to get in their 80s, aren't they? And they're going to say, it's still bent. This world is bent. It's broken. There's no satisfaction in it. I'm tired. I'm weary. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom. Surpassing all who, who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. We've already explained that. This is just him saying again what he's already said. My method was wisdom and knowledge, and I've applied it, and I've done it, and I've done it better than anyone who ever came before me. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So now he even wants to separate out that which is wise and that which is foolish. Don't misunderstand. There are wise things and foolish things in this world. There are. But either one you chase will leave you feeling foolish and empty at the end. If that is only under the sun, it will never satisfy. He distinguished the wise and the foolish, and yet he still felt like he needed more. And then he gives us this proverb, for in much wisdom is much vexation, frustration, frustration, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You ever heard the old saying, Ignorance is what? That's right where some of you are today. You've chased and chased and chased the wind. And every added kernel of knowledge has only brought more pain, more frustration, more sorrow. The more you know, the more you wish you didn't know. If you could just stop your mind in its tracks and keep it from running down that endless track of knowing and knowing more, life would be easier, be better. Because here's the thing, when you search this life out for meaning, using your, all the God-given faculties that any of us have, what you end up with is sorrow because you see the brokenness that no one else wants to look at. It's no wonder that some of the saddest people in the world are philosophers, artists, counselors, because, see, they're seeing a side of the brokenness that the rest of the world doesn't want to look at. They see the hunger. They see the poverty. They see the dullness. They see the darkness. Worse than that, they see the abuse. They see the wrecked lives. And what they want to say is, 
what is the point of all of this? He took his mind, he put it to work, and what he found was this place is broken and this place brings sorrow. And it's not just me. It's everybody who's ever come before me. So I want us to think for a moment. If this is the way life is. Is there any hope? Last week we went from Ecclesiastes by analogy over into the New Testament. This week I want us to go by contrast. Because I want you to know if you're here this morning and you're where this writer is, it's all meaninglessness. I want to say there is another side to this thing that's available to those who come out from under the sun and have connection with the one who's over the sun. Paul says this, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayer and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. The Apostle Paul is writing these words from prison. The smartest, wisest, wealthiest man of his day, Solomon, sought out the problems of this world and returned with the answer. It's all meaningless. He had a position that we all covet, and yet it brought him no hope because it was under the sun. But then we come to the New Testament with the Apostle Paul, and what do we find? A man in a prison cell. You want to trade places with him? A man who's lost everything. Status, power, prestige. All of that's gone in Paul's mind. All of it's gone in Paul's world. Riches? <laughs> He's dependent on church offerings to say a lie. And the church offerings are dwindling because everybody's suffering under a famine. There's only one church still giving him anything to survive, and that's this church in Philippi. He's at the bottom. Our writer was at the top. What's the difference? The writer at the top, the man at the top, the writer in Ecclesiastes is looking at everything from a man's perspective, and he says it's all meaningless. The apostle Paul is not in a better condition in this life, but he's in a condition of contentment in his heart because he knows who Christ is. He has a perspective above the sun. And he says, I see the same wreckage the writer of Ecclesiastes does, but this is what I know. I know that now, as always, whether I live or whether I die, in my body, I will glorify the one who made me. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Christian, 
This has to be the hope that we hold in this life. Our hope in this life is not that by being wiser and better trained, we're going to exceed all of the men around us and women around us, or through wisdom and through building a life around that wisdom, we're going to escape the miseries of this world. Or that by becoming the one that everybody else looks to for the answers, when we give them answers, there's going to be some kind of satisfaction in that. You're still, if you're trapped under the sun, still going to leave wrecked. But when Christ invades your life with the truth of his gospel, his good news, which says that you were once God's enemy, but now you are his son or daughter in Christ, life takes on a different meaning. It goes from meaninglessness, randomness, uncontrolled chaos all around you to everything lending itself toward the great name of God to his glory to the ends of the earth. You look at the same poverty, the same brokenness, the same hurt with the eyes of the gospel. It takes on a whole new life and a whole new meaning. The gospel promises us the only solution to our problem. How will we find meaning under the sun? By bending the knee to the one who made everything. Has purpose for everyone and everything. And in the end, we'll raise our bodies from the dead that we might live with him in a new heaven and a new earth, free from the futility and frustration of this life, free from sin, free from the sting of death, free from the slavery of living every day on a circular pattern that seems to go nowhere. Paul saw his life as a life lived on purpose for the greatest cause ever known to man, making the name of Christ famous to the ends of the earth. And Paul said, therefore, whether I live or die, it's all about Christ. Christian, you'll never find hope. You'll never find hope outside of him. Lost man, woman, child in here today, you can run as hard and as far as you want to go. And you will find nothing but the wind. And you will never catch it. No matter how hard you pursue. Unless you know the one. Christ Jesus, our Savior. So I call you to come to him. Come to him, Christian. Rekindle your love for him. Come to him, lost man, woman, child. Because he is the only answer to this world's problem. Let's pray. Father, as we close this time, having looked at your word and having seen that all pursuits outside of Christ, all pursuits besides Christ, all pursuits, no matter how wise we think they be, end in meaninglessness. Unless we have the ultimate meaning. Lord, I pray for those who are laboring under a cloud of futility, frustration, hurt, pain. 
I pray that they be given the eyes to see and the ears to hear you as you call them to yourself. And that they see they will never be satisfied until they find their satisfaction in you alone. And Lord, I pray for the Christian who knows you and loves you, and yet we're so easily pulled one way and the next in this life. Our busyness is wearisome and feels frustrating. It feels a lot like you've just given us something to do. Help us not to have this view. Help us as Christians to see our life as one piece in a larger puzzle bringing you glory to the ends of the earth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.